Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Jeremy Scott Fitness Podcast and Radio Show. Coming to you on this Wednesday evening here with an episode titled Rules of Money, or maybe we'll call it, uh, you know, 17 Rules of Money or My 17 Rules of Money. And again, it's an arbitrary number. I could probably come up with, you know, 1,700 or, or dwindle it down to maybe seven because uh, some of these kind of, you know, I guess cross over on each other. But I think it's important uh, to share. And before I even dig in, I know a lot of you, um, stumbled onto me because of Instagram or YouTube or Facebook or maybe it's Men's Health or you saw me in some magazine or some platform and you know thought of me as a, you know I'm a, I'm a fit guy or I'm just you know the big you know dumb muscle guy uh, if you will and obviously if you're listening to the podcast at this point um, you can understand there's probably a few more layers to me even though I'm a very primitive basic dude uh, at heart uh, the things I do care about and I become educated on I literally go 100% all in and I punt everything else and Obviously, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a financial advisor. Uh, I'm not a broker. I'm not a CPA. Um, so why would you listen to me in terms of talking about money and finances? Uh, for the sake of, here's the reality. You know, I, I moved here you know, to the Scottsdale, Phoenix area uh, over a decade ago, and I have had a negative net worth. And today I talk to you guys, and I have more money than I've ever thought I could have in my life, possibly uh, my own commercial real estate in the area, obviously. Um, if you guys have followed me for any amount of time, you know my home is about, you know, give or take 10 or 11 payments from being completely paid off. I'm 36 years old, um, something most people never do in reality. And I'm not saying that to, to brag or you know, to make myself sound like I'm amazing, but over a decade ago, I had a negative net worth. I mean, my entire, Jeremy Scott the Human was worth about negative $5,000 because I actually had to uh, take care credit out uh, to pay for LASIK eye surgery that I had at like 25, 26 years old, and I didn't have the money for it. I had parts of it, but I had to make payments on it, and that essentially was the extent of my net worth. I had maybe, you know, two grand in the bank, um, I had a vehicle, and anything I had packed in my car, and that's literally, you know, what my net worth was, and so when you add all that up, um, I'm still in the in the negative uh, for sure. So the reason I speak so passionately about, you know, money and finance, and again, I'm not a money guy. I, I, I teach you know, super sexy advanced adult PE uh, for a living. And I'm a fitness person, and generally speaking, in terms of careers, fitness is not one of the higher ranking ones. Now, you can make a lot of money in fitness, and, and quote-unquote, a lot of money is relative. Now, compared to if I was the equivalent uh, of this life as a surgeon or this life as a, you know, hedge fund manager, obviously, you know, those things aren't even close to scalable. Those guys can obviously out-earn us. But uh, in fitness in this life, if you master your craft and you understand how the game works, you can make a, a really good living. And I share that to share this. If I can go from being a person who knows nothing about finances, doesn't understand you know the market, the economy, um, how to leverage money, how to get out of debt, just 10 short years ago to be in the position I am today, I feel I have um, like a responsibility to share it with all of you listening out there who might be struggling to, you know, pay off your home, pay off student loans. You're in credit card debt. You're in, you know, auto loan leases or things that just aren't going to put you in a situation to be financially independent and successful. And the other reason I share that is a lot of people. Here's how the world works. Most of us we were not born rich. We weren't born the unicorns. Our parents don't have 50 million bucks. They didn't give it to us and they don't fund our lifestyle. So we have to spend a majority of time at work to earn money. So most of you, probably 60 to 70% of your life is spent at work. When you look at the scope of your entire existence, just as much time is spent at work as is spent sleeping, give or take. 
And now that's a huge chunk of your fucking life. And yet we're spending all this time at jobs and a lot of people at jobs they don't love or at best they kind of like, but a lot of people hate what they do for a living. Yet you're trading your lifetime for a job and a task, which is going to give you money. So essentially you're trading your lifetime for money. So if you make $75,000 a year, you're trading 65 to 70% of your life that year for $70,000, which is fine. I understand we live in an economical world. We can all think, you know, kumbaya and wishes are going to, you know, fund our lives, but it fucking won't. That's not reality. So knowing you have to trade your lifetime for money, and then you get money for spending your time there and then yet not be educated on what you do with that money and how to replicate it, make your life easier, let you live a more stress-free life, be able to travel the world, see things and do a bunch of fun stuff with that money because you're in this perpetual cycle of like going to work and overspending, going to work and overspending. It's the same way I look at people who become you know overweight and, and a lot of times the debt stuff isn't, it doesn't happen overnight. Most people don't blow $50,000 a day because for the simple fact most people don't have $50,000 just like most people don't gain 50 pounds of weight in six months. It's that creepy obesity. It's, it's gaining two to three to four or five pounds per year every year for 10 years. Now you're 50 pounds overweight. It's the same thing with people with, with auto loans and credit card debt and mortgage payments and student loans. It's they, they get behind on their bills. 2,000 bucks here, 2,000 bucks here, 3,000 bucks here, and all of a sudden 10 years go by and they're 37, 47, 56,000 in debt and they don't know how to get out. The hole is too big. They don't have a shovel big enough to get out of there. So that's why I speak about this so passionately. And I think if my life was to transition to something and I was going to speaking and talking of things outside of just health and fitness, which I don't think I ever will, I would tie it into like kind of a fitness and finance, you know, podcast or a fitness, which is essentially this is anyway, you know, a fitness and finance book or a fitness and finance course where we teach people, you know, how to live a healthier life. And I think that starts with understanding you know, how to use money to your benefit. And so these would be my, you know, 17 rules from a broke kid who had no money and no resources and nothing to the person who is talking to you today who is now financially independent and sitting in a position that, A, I never thought I would be in at 85 years old, let alone at 36 years old. And I have to give you guys the full background. I don't come from money. Um, my Neither of my parents graduated from college. Neither of my parents ever made over $50,000 in a year. Um, I grew up as a young kid, a lot of it in a two-bedroom apartment. I slept on a bunk bed. We did our laundry this place called Duds and Suds. It's a shit like that I'm never going to forget. You know, my parents worked super hard. You know, they're, they're divorced, you know, single, you know, kind of parent families with two kids doing the best they could. I appreciate them for everything they did, but they weren't high earners. And, you know, and I might sit here and look great because I make way more money than they ever did, but I also have the fucking internet, right? So there, there is that where, uh, you know, they were kind of stuck in their medium. And I share that to give you guys the premise that if I can do it, anybody can do it. I graduated college not knowing really what health, you know, care insurance premiums were. I didn't really know even how health insurance works, to be honest with you, when I graduated college. I didn't know what an IRA was. I didn't know what a 401k was. I didn't know what, like, like what a SEP was. I didn't understand index funds, mutual funds. I didn't know anything about financing, investment, the market, how real estate really worked. And uh, obviously, it's it would be next to fitness and healthy living and mindset lifestyle. It's the next area of my life that I'm very much interested in because I see how not having money, but using it poorly and using it correctly can change the scope of your happiness, the amount of stress you have in your life. So without further delay, um, these are, you know, my 17 rules for money and how I would suggest you use them to not, not to get, you know, filthy, crazy rich. That's up to you how much money you think you need to have in your life. For some people, it's a hundred thousand dollars. For some people, it's $10 million. You're going to draw the line there of, you know, where the, you kind of, 
I guess, happiness and work index kind of meets each other at the pinnacle of what you do or don't need. But these would be my 17 tips to help you live, you know, a more stress-free life and using money to your benefit and not being a slave to it. So rule number one, learn how to create income. I think the biggest thing is, you know, when you're early in your life, um, being able to hustle, that's what's going to matter most at first. I think for most people, their greatest wealth building tool is their ability to earn income. And where that comes down to is have a skill. Um, being being a nice person, obviously, is part of that. But having a craft, a skill, being a technician of something, um, that is something you can use for the rest of your life. And I, and I share the story of my buddy, Dave Dries, who just sold his gym like a month ago, and he's still working inside the gym, not as the owner anymore, but as the technician. He's still coaching some of his personal clients. He's still covering some of the groups and stuff. That is a skill set he has forever. If he goes and tries eight different careers and it doesn't work out for him, he can come work for me any day. And we can partner on a lot of stuff and, and even be partners on things and he can work for me and other things if he chooses to because he has a skill set. So I think the first rule of having money is learning how to generate an income and having a skill and a craft and something that you can do for other people in order for them to pay you money. Or, you know, if you want to be in the entrepreneurial life, creating it on your own. I think that's common sense and it goes without saying. But if you can earn a lot of money, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have a lot of money, but it, it does get you, you know, a little bit of a head start. Number two learning how to invest that money once you get it. And for most people, this is probably going to be um, in the stock markets or into real estate or somewhere in that field. When you look at the scope of most people who are millionaires in America, a uh, majority of them, you know, obviously made it, their net worth is made up of, you know, their assets, which typically is what they have in the stock market, whether it be, you know, uh, IRAs, 401ks, and then obviously if they do own real estate, whether it's personal, um, if they have rentals, or they do commercial real estate. But learning how to invest your money, I think, is key. For a lot of you, if you do not have a financial advisor, I would urge you to pick one up instantly. And when you find one, get one that doesn't talk over you and make you feel stupid about yourself. So when they say things and they're explaining it, make them slow down. And they should be a teacher at heart. They should be able to teach you what an index fund is. They should be able to tell you, hey, here's how we're going to buy these mutual funds. They should be able to tell you, here's your estimated retirement date. Here, They should be able to tell you what's the max you can contribute. And, and a side note, for those of you who are working in corporate America, um, if you have a match at your job, do the match minimum always. I'm not going to tell you how to invest the rest of your money. It's up to you guys. I would say for a general rule of thumb, most people, if you're investing probably at least 15% of your income into retirement, I think you're going to be probably in a pretty good position. But if nothing else, if your company has a 5% match and you're not giving a 5%, it's the dumbest fucking thing you can do. You're literally giving away money. Because I live in the entrepreneurial life, and I can promise you this, nobody is matching anything I'm putting in. So anything that is in my accounts, I had to self-generate from nothing that came from scratch. So if you do work at a place with a match, you have to at least at a minimum do that. I promise you the power of compounding is real, and it might seem like it's slow, and that first $100,000 it takes you to get into your account is going to feel like it's forever. But once you hit that, man, things start to snowball uh, in a positive way pretty quickly. Number three. Don't be a hater of money. Uh, money is not the root of all evil. It isn't. Uh, I think money, much like social media, and if you're talking about the fitness world, uh, much like people who do you know, a heavy dose of anabolic steroids, um, it just makes you more of, of who you already were. Like for people who, in the fitness world, whether you guys know this or not, people who get on you know, a shit ton of drugs and they become aggressive and, and crazy and you know, kind of insane... Uh, in terms of like, you know, the aggression that they have. Obviously, there's hormones that's involved in that. But if you're already kind of a hothead and you're, you're pissed and you're aggressive, and obviously you add, you know, an anabolic cocktail to that, you're going to be even more of that. I think the same thing. I don't think, you know, money changes us. I think it exposes us. 
uh, just the way that social media does. And you can only fake it in front for so long. And so money is not inherently evil at all. Um, if you're an asshole and you get a bunch of money, you're just probably going to be a bigger asshole. Um, if you really value certain things and you don't have much money, but then you get a ton of money, you're probably going to buy more of those things that you value. So money is not evil. It actually can, it can't buy you happiness, but it can buy you a certain sense of comfort and security if you use it correctly, in my opinion. At least that's been the experience for my life. And I am by no means money-driven at anything I do, but I also understand I live in the economical world and I don't want to be a burden to friends and family. And I don't want to have to beg the banks or people to bail me out for certain things. And so I do understand the importance of it. And I do not think it's evil. Um, anybody who believes that, obviously, I don't think they have a really good grasp of understanding of economics in general. Number four, give every dollar a name or a job when you're setting a budget. And I think uh, even Dave Ramsey has like an every dollar app, which is pretty basic and easy to use. It hooks up to your bank account. You can roll through it. But what I'm saying is, as our house, obviously, my wife is, is 33. I'm 36. Our goal is to pay off our house in, you know, 10 months. We have to be on the same page. We have to be on a budget. And every dollar that comes in, we have to know where it's going. So we have to allot this much, you know, for mortgage, for taxes, for insurance, for excess to the principal. We have to allot this much for gas, this much for food, this much for, you know, in our house. We have a pool person, uh, a housekeeper. The, the normal things we have to do if you have to get a haircut, uh, if you have to get an oil change, the most basic things every single dollar should have a name and every single dollar should have a job to do. If it doesn't, what's going to happen is that money kind of wanders off. Just the same way you guys can wander into being overweight and obese when you're not tracking macros or have an understanding of, you know, calories in, calories out. It's the same thing with finances. If your money does not have a specific job to do in a specific place it's going, you'll tend to overspend it. At least that's been my experience at a very young age. And that's what I see a lot of people in America doing is just literally making money, but not really sure where it's going or what to do with it. Um, so they just, they tend to spend it and all of a sudden they wake up and like, wow, we make a shit ton of money, but we really don't have anything to show for it. That's why I say every dollar should have a name and every dollar should have a job to do each month. And that's just comes down to you guys setting a monthly budget uh, together. Number five, spend less than you earn always. I'm gonna say that again. Spend less than you earn always. And this might be the most important one. Um, when you look at statistics of people who are millionaires, uh, and there's about 12 million in America now, um, a majority of those people at scale didn't make, you know, six figures and they didn't make multiple six figures. But what they did do is they spent way less money than they made. It's pretty simple. If they made 50 bucks, they only spent 41. If they made 100 bucks, they only spent 37. Um, if you wash, rinse, and repeat that for the rest of your life, you'll be rich as fuck. Um, I know that sounds overly simplistic and basic and primitive, and maybe that's why I understand it so much, because that's how I am. Uh, but it's the truth, and it's the reality. So if you're out there, your income does matter, but it doesn't matter as much if you make 300k a year, but you're living like you make 400k a year you're really no different than the guy who makes, you know, 30 grand a year and is spending 40 grand a year. It's essentially the same thing. You're just playing a game at a higher level. And if you're making that kind of money and you're still not making ends meet and you're still stressed and you're still in debt, um, you're walking a fine line, man. And I've seen a lot of people who, you know, look like they're winning in reality, but they're really suffering, uh, you know, in private. And I'll touch on that more in, in a later episode. But again, the takeaway is, you guys understand what you make and understand what's going out. Make a basic, you know, profit and loss sheet, a P&L sheet for your life and uh, stick to it and make sure the P's are more than the L's month to month. Number six, don't be a slave to money 
your job, or possessions. And this is why I harp on that. Money can be used for a lot of things. And when you were a kid, it was used to buy fun shit. I remember when I was a kid and I would get like 10 bucks. I thought it was rich as hell. Or like at Christmas time, I'd end up with like $100 or like $200. And my dad would like do the savings thing where he saved his, his job all year and like gave us money or my mom and him would pull it together. And like I had like 300 bucks at Christmas, which would last me like an entire year. Because when you're broke as shit, you make 300 bucks go real long. Uh, but you buy some things you like too. And so for me, money was to buy fun shit. So like I go and like... This place um, called Pro Image, uh, where I grew up, and you, they had all these like snapbacks and fitted hats. And I'm like, a fitted hat was like 25 bucks. It was like super expensive. And I'm like, or you get sometimes two snapbacks for like two for 30 bucks. And I would buy cool hats because I loved hats. And I would, like, or I'd buy some basketball cards. Or if I really wanted to splurge, like I'd buy some Jordans. You know, like just cool, fun shit. Or like, like a Jordan poster. Like I love basketball, obviously. Um, and that's what we would do with our money. And money can let you do really cool things. But when you get into a lifestyle of keeping up with the Joneses and always thinking you have to have the newest, the fanciest, the biggest, and the flashiest, you become a slave to money. You become a slave to your job. You become a slave to possessions. And uh, it controls you. You don't control it. Like the saying, like, you know, being house poor. A lot of people are that. Or a lot of people are driving around with, you know, car payments and car loans. And the average car payment in America right now is $502, I think, was the last stat I pulled up. That's... $6,000 $6,000 a year you're paying to basically rent your car. You are making payments on a depreciating asset that is going down in value. I would never tell you guys to invest money in things with motors and wheels on them. Now, if you want to buy them because they're cool and they're fun, that's great. And if you can afford it, respect. I'm not judging you for it. Go ahead and do it. But if you don't make money and you feel like you're stressed and you have to work and you have to grind and do all the shit you hate just to drive a certain kind of car, I think that's fucking crazy. That's you you know, for lack of a better word, being a slave to money and possessions and then feeling like you have to go work at your job and it's causing you unnecessary stress where a lot of people, if they trade in their BMW for a Honda Accord or they trade in their Mercedes for a Toyota Camry, it would buy them a lifestyle that they could do way more fun shit and they'd have way more freedom and they'd have way less stress. Now, they wouldn't look quote unquote as cool driving on the road, which at the end of the day, nobody gives a shit anyway. But yet people are becoming slave to those things. And I would urge you guys not to do that. Number seven, have a plan for your money and set short, medium, and long-term goals. I think this is crucial for life. I think it's the same thing for fitness. You should have short-term, medium, and and long-range goals. And you may hit some. You may not hit some. Some might change and shift along the way, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with changing your mind. It's called being a mature adult and you be able to, you know, change gears and shift lanes and do things that are going to fit your lifestyle at the time. And then obviously what you want your life to look like in the future. But not having a plan for your money short and long term, I think is crazy because you're never going to get anywhere. You're going to be spinning your wheels. And if you really want to do epic shit like in your life, you're going to have to ask yourself, you know, what do I want my life to look like a year from now, five years from now and 25 years from now? And a lot of the you know, financial decisions I've made in my life, um, let's say five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years ago, are paying off for me today. And that's the tough part for a lot of people. It's the delayed gratification. It's the same way fitness works. It's the same way I was able to work out for many years and not look like anything and kind of look like and feel like a bag of shit in a reality. Like I would train so hard and eat so much and my body wouldn't change at the pace I wanted it to. And all those sets and all those reps and all those painful workouts are paying off today in the body that I'm sitting in talking to you right now. If you're watching me on YouTube, obviously I look a certain way that comes from that long-term goal that I set. So, Hey man, at 30, 
I want to be this. At 35, I want to look like this. And then it'll be at 40 and at 50. It's the same thing with your money. You have to understand, like, what do I want to do? When do I want to retire? Is that a thing for you guys? And and what? And again, retirement is not an age. It's just a number. Do you need $3 million bucks to retire at 45 years old? Do you need $4 million to retire? Or do you need a $1 million to retire? They're very basic, simple things that people don't think about. And obviously, you know, when you're young and you're 22, you don't think about anything at 42. When you're when I was 21, I thought when you're 35, you're old as shit. Well, now I'm there. I'm not old as shit. You'd be surprised how young you feel. But yet, if I would have made six wrong decisions, honestly, to be to be completely transparent with you guys, I didn't have six wrong decisions to make. Um, I come from a background with no money, so every fucking decision basically had to make sense. And so, if I would have made one wrong decision, I wouldn't have been able to make two or the three of the best financial moves in my life to put me in the situation I'm in today. Because buying a car, you know, when I quote unquote had the money to buy a Range Rover, when I had the money to buy a Benz, um, if I would have done that, instead of saving it for the future to, you know, buy my condo, then, you know, which allowed us to buy our house, which, you know, obviously saving over time, which allowed me to buy a commercial uh, building, you know, that my gym is actually housed in right now. I would not have had the liquid cash to do that. And that cash would not have grown in a mutual fund over time to be able to pay me to be able to do these things. And so that's why I say you have to have a plan for your money, medium, short, and also long-term. Number eight, I touched on this quickly already, create a budget and stick to the budget and stay organized. And if you're by yourself, it's pretty simple. You know what comes in, you know what goes out. If you're with a a husband or wife or a partner, you guys have to be on the same page. And you really have to just, again, spend less money than you are making. It's really that simple and basic. It's budgeting 101. It's finance 101. Yet very few people choose to do that. And they kind of live on this, you know, paycheck to paycheck lifestyle, which by the way, if you look at the statistics, I think about 75% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. So that means when you drive around your neighborhood, and this is everybody. Now there's obviously some affluent areas, and I'm going to touch on this in a second, but that means if you're driving your neighborhood, whoever you are listening, that means seven out of 10 houses in your hood are living check to check, regardless of how poor or rich your neighborhood is. And here's the, the one thing I, I find funny as I get older and I've met, you know, so many, I'll, I'll, I'll call them financially successful people over the course of my life. I always thought when I was young, because I grew up broke and we didn't have any money. And I'll, I'll still hear my, my mom would say this when she would come to visit, would drive around here close to my house. And I, I'll share this. Uh, I live in Scottsdale and my old, my original realtor, um, who's a client of mine, he, he used to live about five minutes from me. And we went to his Christmas party and uh, he sold his house. Uh, it was like the last party they were having there. And he sold it. I'm like, how much did you sell it for? He goes, $8 million. And the guy paid cash for it, which two things. One, some dude just paid $8 million cash for a house. So just goes to show you there's, there's, mon- there's levels to this money shit, right? Um, you feel like you're doing really well. And then some guy just comes in and pays $8 bucks cash for a house. And then they tell me that's like his second or third house. But uh, that's besides the point. But point being is he lives about five minutes from me. And he sold his house for uh, obviously eight million bucks, and it's you hear stuff like that, and it doesn't really sink in until I think about when I was a young kid, and I always thought you know rich people owned everything, like right, like and so my mom and I we drive around here and so we drive around my old realtor's neighborhood. She's like, who lives in these homes? How do they afford it? And I'm like, well, a they're people who have died for it. They're typically high earners. 
Um, and the third thing is most of them don't really own it outright. And that's what I always thought. So when I was a, a broke kid and we drove by like a big house um, and people who had nice cars, I always assumed when you were rich, you owned those things outright. But what I realized is over the years of meeting these people who are multimillionaires is they're just like my parents were growing up. They're still making payments. They just had bigger payments. Like my parents might have had a $600 a month house payment. These guys have $6,000 a month house payments. You know what I'm saying? Like my parents maybe had a car payment or maybe they just bought beaters and never had one. I know my dad never did. And uh, these people just have bigger car payments. That's all it is. Like the scale, all, all this changes the scale. So a lot of times the people who are living in a $3 million house, but yet they're they're leveraged up to the very brink are no different than the guy living in the trailer park. Now, albeit the guy in the trailer park might only have a net worth of, you know, 15,000 bucks. And the guy, you know, in the million dollar house has a net worth of $2 million, but yet he's still living essentially check to check as he still has to go to work to make the payments and to pay his bills. And that's what I, that was an eye opening for me when I first realized that, that, wow, even people who look like they're super rich and super wealthy and successful are still super stressed, are still sometimes a slave to their possessions and their homes and their cars. And that was eye opening to me. And that was around the time, probably, you know, eight years ago or so where I'm like, well, I know what I don't want my life to look like, and I know what I do want my life to look like. And I'm, you know, not, I'm never going to live in an $8 million house, even if I had, you know, the, the money to do that, because I'm never going to take out a loan again. That's just between all of us. Um, I wouldn't, even if I had the cash to do that, that's not something that I would do. And I'm not judging it, but that's just me because I don't want to take on the stress of that. My happiness is worth too much for me to stress out over just things. And so, that's why I say creating a budget, uh, you know, and staying organized matters. And budgeting matters at all levels. Whether you're, you know, making four hundred thousand dollars a year or you're making forty thousand dollars a year, that budget does matter. Number nine, always have an emergency fund for everybody. Um, if you follow the Dave Ramsey stuff, he typically says three to six months of expenses. I find that to probably be true as well. If you're, you know, you live a little bit more on the dangerous side. You could err towards three months. If you're more conservative like me, I like to have about 12 months of expenses. So like whatever your you know monthly income is for your family, whether it's just for you or it's you and your spouse, what would three to six months of that look like in a savings account or a separate account, like a money market account that you do not touch, that under any circumstance, unless the world is completely melting down and you're having emergencies, um, you touch it. I would say that's a, a good place for people to be, to be able to sleep at night. And when you think about it, most people don't even have 500 bucks in the bank. A lot of people don't even have a thousand dollars to their name, so let alone three to six months of expenses. And I think that's a real, that'd be a real scary place to live because I, I used to be there. I did. I remember when I moved here, I paid rent the first day I was here, and I think my bank account was already down to like nineteen hundred bucks at that point. And then I obviously had to buy groceries. I bought my wife a beer one time, which was five dollars. I'll never remember it because it's the most expensive beer I had bought at the time. And I'm like, holy shit, I just paid ten bucks for two beers. I'm gonna be broke quick. Um, and that's a scary place to be. And so if you guys can, if you're listening to me, saving up three to six months of expenses in case, you know, one of you loses a job, you have an emergency with one of you or kids or your air conditioner goes out or one of the cars die or it goes into a recession and you get laid off, whatever it may be. I think just having that security blanket at night is, uh, is a good place to be at. Number 10, don't use credit cards unless you have the cash. Um, I believe this. I don't think, you know, credit cards are inherently evil or bad. I think they can be used. Um, correctly for certain types of people, but overall, I think they're a, they're a fucking disease for most people, and they get a lot of people into a lot of trouble. And it's literally like the interest rates a lot of people are paying. It's like taking a loan from the mob, uh, probably even worse in all reality, because um, they don't let you guys get out of that shit. And if you're doing it to earn miles, 
you know, for, for traveling and certain things and you can do it responsibly and you use it the same way you would use like a debit card. I guess I can roll with it. We do that here at our house because I'm very responsible with the budget. Um, but I don't think it's for most people. And that's just my belief in two cents. I think a lot of people, you know, spend money recklessly when they do that. And it's different because we do use cash here at our house for a lot of things because it's painful to do. And when you go somewhere, and it, it, this is true, uh, your brain and how memory is coded in the brain has a, a great association with pain. It's like, think about any, like, the most worst workouts you've ever done, you remember that shit. Or if you've ever, like, ridden an assault bike for a minute, max effort, you remember how sick you feel, and it really never goes away. I mean, the, the pain goes away, but the memory of that pain doesn't go away. Um, like when I filmed uh, the very first uh, leg <laughs> workout of Metashred Extreme with BJ Gadur, um, I've told him this. I'm like, I'll never forget that. I wanted to quit and walk off set because during like the very end of the split squats, I want to blow my fucking brains out. It was like split squats and then split jumps back and forth. I mean, he programmed it. He's BJ, you're terrible. Um, but he did. And that was a, a painful experience for me. And I'll never forget that. And spending cash is the same way. When you hand cash to somebody, it it's painful for you to hand away the money because you can physically see it and you're physically handing it over. It's coded in your brain. And there's there's an exchange of goods there. You're handing away something and they're giving you something for it. So you had a hundred bucks, now you have forty-five bucks. It's painful to see that money go out of your hand. When you swipe a credit card and you use it, there's no exchange of goods. You swipe your card or now you stick it in, they read the chip and then you take it back and they give you the stuff. And then you live to look at it, numbers on the screen later, and then you pay the bill, hopefully on time. But there's no pain associated with that. And that's how we, you know, when my wife's car had died years ago, I paid for a majority of it in, in cash, in paper money, because I wanted to remember what that felt like. Hey, I'm you know, lucky and, and I'm fortunate enough to be in a, in a position to do that. But I remember handing it over and they're looking at me like I'm fucking crazy as three dudes are counting all the money because they're like, who the hell does this? And I'm like this is a painful experience. I don't want to do this again. And it, w- it would have been much easier for me to, you know, swipe a credit card if they would have let me out. It took time to take the airline miles for sure. But to, you know, put it on a loan and then and make the, the payment small over time because it's, it's way less painful, you know, to make $356 payments than it would be to just drop 20 G's cash right on the spot. But I don't want to pay interest for a depreciating asset. That's why I don't do auto loans, just for the record, you guys. I'm never going to pay interest on something that's going down in value every single day. I think that is ridiculous. I'm not judging anybody. Respect. I don't know your situation. If you like to drive nice things, that's super cool. I think it's amazing. I like watching them drive down the road. I'm just not personally willing to do that. So that's where I say don't use a credit card unless you're super responsible, super diligent, and you stick to the budget of what you're choosing to spend on that and you have the cash to pay it off as soon as the bill comes due every single month. Otherwise, for most of you, just hook it up to a debit card in your checking account. Fuck the miles, dude. Um, or just use cash anytime you can. And I, I promise you, you'll spend significantly less using cash than you will with a credit card. Because when you don't have the cash for it and you're at the store, you can only spend what you got in your hand. You can't swap, you know, quote unquote, the magic card and uh, things just work out. Next one. Always make your money work for you in some capacity. This is why um, I harp on the investing thing for a lot of you guys. And that can look like a lot of things. You can invest in yourself. You can invest in your business. Um, But when I say work for you, you know, when you look at the stock market over time, um, even if you're only getting, 
five or six percent returns on your money. I don't know of another place where you can just set money and over the course of 20, 30 years, it, it pays you five to six percent, you know, on the dollar. Some of you guys who have better, you know, mutual funds, it could be seven, eight, nine, ten percent. But if you look at the average, I think they probably say six percent is kind of like a safe bet for most people. So that means if you got a hundred grand in the bank or in your, you know, Roth IRA, your 401k, your SEP stuff, if there's a hundred thousand bucks in there, you're gonna get six thousand dollars a year for doing jack shit. Pretty cool. If you got $100,000 in the bank at Bank of America or Wells Fargo, they're giving you like 37 bucks. It's horse shit. So that's why I say like having your you know money work for you in some capacity I think is ideal. Obviously, if you own rental properties, those things are going to cash flow, obviously, once they're completely paid off. Um, if you're investing into real estate, short of, you know, 07, 08, which I lived through, um, we've never seen real estate take a hit that drastic, although I'd be interested to see what is going to happen here in the future. I just, I don't see how it can keep going up, but again, I'm not a, I'm not an analyst. I don't know. I just know how ridiculously expensive it's gotten in my neighborhood for what I paid for my house. And if I had to rebuy it again today, there's no fucking way I would do it. Um, so there's that, but I think investing in things and having your money make money or investing them in things that tend to go up in value, not go down in value, i.e. vehicles and clothes and handbags and crazy shit is probably a good place to, uh, to stick your money in terms of if you want to be, you know, financially independent and successful in the long haul. Number 12, it's not what you make, it's what you keep. This goes back to, you know, spending less than you earn, but it isn't what you make, you guys, it's what you keep. And I'm going to share this really fast. I remember sitting in like a mastermind group and they're sharing the numbers of top line revenue of what these guys made in fitness for the year. And it was like close to a million bucks. And basically it was just over a million dollars, I think. It was either just under a million or just over a million. And then they're like, what was the profit margin? And it was like less than 10%. So, I mean, these guys did fitness, which is amazing, by the way. You're generating a million dollars in fitness in a year, which is really impressive to do. And I'm not talking like, you know, a Lifetime or EOS or LA Fitness. I'm talking like small mom and pop places like a me, like a Jeremy Scott Fitness or, you know, Arizona Training Lab or, you know, something like that where it's these guys were generating about a million bucks in business and they're getting, they're keeping less than 10%. So for a million dollars worth of, you know, diehard work, they walked out the door with 92,000 bucks which isn't a lot to me. If you're making that much, I would assume you're keeping way more than that. Now, I don't have the percentages for every single business of what they should keep, but same thing for you guys who have individual incomes. If you make $100,000 a year, but at the end of the year, you're only keeping 3,000 bucks, where is all that money going? Does that make sense? Like to the guy who makes 44,000 bucks a year and at the end of the year, he keeps 22 of it. Like he's doing, he's doing much better than the guy who makes a hundred. So again, it's not about what you make. It's what you keep at the end of the day. How profitable can you be uh, with the money that is coming into your life? Number 13, understand that there's a money and work ratio happiness for us all. And I think this is important and I'll touch on it this way. There's a, there's a line where you draw when there comes a point where you start to make a certain amount of money, it starts to steal from you. It starts to steal time. It starts to steal happiness, effort, and energy from your life. Now, obviously, you have to grind and work hard if you want to make a decent amount of money in the world in America. And how much you need is up to you guys. But I think the statistic they throw out there is anything over like $75,000 a year, the happiness level really doesn't change that much for a lot of people. Meaning for them to earn over 75000 bucks, a lot of people have to die for it depending on their chosen career field. And it's really it's really robbing them, you know, so they go from 75 to 84. 
but that extra $9,000 took this much more effort. They had to take more business trips or they had to eat more shit or they went from 75 to 95. And that extra 20K was crushing them in terms of the amount of stress they had to take on for the next you know, level job or the next promotion. And only you guys know where that lies. And if you look at, you know, highest earning people in America or in the world, they tend to be the people who can take on the most amount of stress and eat the most amount of shit and be the most flexible and work the longest hours and and have the highest skilled jobs. Not always, um, but more often than not, obviously, if you're somebody who is a brain surgeon, you're going to get paid a lot of money. Not everybody can do what you do. And there's a lot of stress associated with that. Um, we got a girl in our space. She's an anesthesiologist. She just graduated. Makes a shit ton of money. There's a lot of pressure with that. You're putting people under. You're responsible for their lives, having them come back to life, if you will, and making sure that they're getting what they need and, you know, pumping them with a certain amount of drugs and monitoring their vital signs. And so the amount of money you make in this life is directly connected to the amount of stress you're willing to take or the amount of a highly technical skill you have that you're willing to display and give back to the world overall. And for a lot of people, I think they think if they made a certain amount of money, they would be super happy and it would fix all their problems. And if you're dead broke, then obviously, you know, going from making $12,000 a year to $35,000 a year is going to change the scope of your life drastically. But for a lot of people, the amount of stress you would have to take on and the amount of shit you'd have to eat to make $157,000 a year, to make $101,000 a year, to make $220,000 a year is not worth it for you. You'd rather have more free time. You'd rather be able to sleep in on the weekends and have more relaxation and not travel and not deal with high stress situations. But for some of you, the stress is worth it and the juice is worth the squeeze for the money. But only you guys uh, know where that line falls and just know that when you're going for promotions and, and trying to make money and do different things, sometimes um, a couple extra bucks really isn't worth the headache. Just my opinion. Number 14, you have to have multiple sources of income, whether that be side hustles and investments um, and a handful of things. And, and this is the one thing that became eye-opening to me when I became you know, a business owner or an entrepreneur, if you will. It's not just you know, selling fitness. It's not just selling, you know, personal training or group training or nutrition or uh, t-shirts and hats or podcasting or affiliates or uh, online coaching or doing it's It's anything and everything is how I look at it at this point. Now, obviously, I'm not going to get it. I'm not going to invest in things I don't understand. I'm not going to say yes to job opportunities and stuff that I'm not, uh, you know, smart enough to, to be able to see it through. Uh, if someone wants me to come, you know, teach a yoga class, it's not for me. A, they can't afford me anyway. Uh, and two, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. But point being is you have to have multiple streams of revenue and income, in my opinion, to be uh, financially independent and successful for most people. And for us, when I look at it, I think we have like 12 different revenue streams at all times going. Now, throughout the year, that can go up to probably 15 or 16. But for the most part, we have, you know, 12 different streams of revenue that are paying you know, Jeremy Scott Fitness and the, the subsidiaries that run off of Jeremy Scott Fitness, you know, the company. And I believe that's important. And when I got into this entrepreneurial type life, that's what I really, I grasped onto that. And that's one of the things I think is the coolest is when you're getting 12 different checks coming in, it alleviates pressure from everything else. And it makes it, it's kind of fun. It's almost like these little side hustle games uh, that we play. And I enjoy that. And obviously investing into commercial real estate, you know, uh, residential real estate, and obviously into the market as well, I think is important for all people. And when you're in a corporate job, I think sometimes you get uh, tunnel vision or you have you kind of blinders on you when you're going down the track because you think, well, I work at my job Monday through Friday and this is it and this is all I can do. But even doing something so simple as a side hustle that brings you an extra 500 bucks a month for a lot of you guys out there who qualify, that can fund your Roth IRA. There you go. 
your side hustle alone can fund your Roth IRA, which that alone over the terms of 40 years is probably going to make you a millionaire anyway. It's really basic stuff like that. When you work in corporate America, a lot of times people think like they can't do other things, but you can. You can have a side hustle. You can have passion projects that end up turning into things that make money. And even if it only makes you 3000 bucks a year. That's 3000 bucks a year. It might pay for some of your kids' sports. It might pay for a down payment on braces. It might pay for a beater car for your 16-year-old kid. But I think if you want to be you know, really financially independent and have a better chance to do some of the things you want, having a, a little side hustle or, or one or two streams of revenue outside of your main you know, job or source of income is a, is a great idea. Number 15, you don't have to make six figures to become a millionaire. And this is 100% true. When you look at all the studies of millionaires, and whether it's you're reading uh, The Millionaire Next Door or uh, Chris Hogan has a new uh, Everyday Millionaires book that's out as well. Um, but I think the, the Millionaire Next Door was the first book that I read on millionaires many, many, many years ago, probably when I was 20, 26. I stumbled upon that. And just to see the basic habits of people, when you look at the top three earners for millionaires, I think it's accountants, um, what's the next one, engineers, and then teachers, oddly enough are the top three uh, professions of people who are, are millionaires on average when you look at the 12 million that are in America. And some of those guys might make six figures, but if you're a teacher, I don't know any teachers who make six figures. Um, I guess if you're like a college professor maybe and you've been in the game for a long time, but if you're like doing high school or middle school or elementary school, there's no way you're making six figures. But yet those people became millionaires. Again, this comes back to the point of it's not what you make. It's what you keep, and it's what type of lifestyle are you living today, and what do you want your lifestyle to look like 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now? Now, obviously, still live your life and have fun. I'm not telling you to save all your money for retirement you know, and live in a cave and don't do you know, fun, cool shit, but understanding that you don't have to make $100,000, $200,000, $300,000 a year to become a millionaire. Most people didn't do it that way. Slow and steady won the race. They made you know, way more money than they spent, and they made smart decisions along the way and they invested things that went up in value as opposed to things that went down in value. And they didn't get too fancy uh, and too crazy with their shit too soon. I think that's probably the biggest takeaway. Everybody wants to be fancy super quick and they've forgotten like what middle America um, even really looks like. And I'll touch on that before I let you guys go here. Number 16, give to those who have less than you whenever you can. And I know this might sound counterintuitive or productive for you guys trying to build wealth and do certain things. And obviously, if you're in, you know, fifty thousand dollars in debt, you, if you owe three hundred thousand dollars on your house, if you have, you know, car leases and payments, and you got a shit ton of student loans, you probably can't be as generous and as giving as you like. But just so you know, there's always people out there who are in bigger need than you. And I'm not telling you if you're a person of faith and you tithe and that's what you do, that's cool. That's 10% off the top for you guys who don't know of everything. When you, if, if you belong to a church, that's what they do. Um, what we choose to do at our house is many things individually with our, with our family here and through my business. So like when we just did um, the breast cancer shirts for uh, you know, American Breast Cancer Society for Bre the Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and we sold a gold to raise at least uh, like 3000 bucks, And I think we're already way past. I think we sold out in actually a day. So what I did is I took my own money. We bought the shirts. We branded them. We made them cool. And I know if we did that, people would want the shirts. And we allowed them to donate whatever they wanted to. That was our version of giving back to them to be able to raise money for breast cancer and give people back something that they wanted to while allowing them to give, to bringing them into the community. We do adopt to families at Christmas time and Thanksgiving time where we go to, uh, sometimes through Goodwill or St. Vincent de Paul. They hook us up with the family and we go deliver them things. 
Um, sometimes it's Thanksgiving dinner, uh, Christmas time, it's Christmas dinner, it's Christmas presents. And I remember, you know, these are people who have nothing. And, and I grew up with not a lot. And these going to these homes in like in like South Phoenix here, which is not sometimes the greatest area in some of these communities where it's like we're a mom and there's no dad or maybe there's a mom and dad but they have like six kids or it's a mother and like five kids and she doesn't really speak the language sometimes and then obviously the kids you know are growing up in this ecosystem and environment a lot of the, the homes have bars in the windows they have gates on the driveways and we go do adopt a family and I remember one of the years we one of the first years we did we delivered them a microwave to the family and we brought the microwave in and they unwrapped it in front of us and these kids are crying. Like these little kids are like crying tears of joy. They're so jacked. They're so excited for a fucking microwave, you guys. Like I grew up with no money. We always had a fucking microwave. Like my, like my God. There, again, there's levels to this money shit, right? There's levels that go up. And man, there's levels that go down. And when you see that, there's no amount of better money I spent the entire year than helping fund that family to have a fucking microwave. Like what do I need to drive around a Range Rover for? if I could help somebody feel this way today. The feeling I got selfishly from from giving that to them was worth more than anything I got for Christmas that year for sure. And when we went last year, we, it was a mom and she had three kids. And in the worst, I mean, literally like the worst house I've ever been in that I've ever seen. And I remember my wife and I stopped there we brought the Christmas presents to the kids. And these kids are just, I mean, I've never seen kids so jacked and so excited in your entire life. And the, and the feeling you get from that is just from giving. And it, it there's no amount of money that would make me feel that way. Saying that my net worth is, is 2 million bucks or 3 million bucks or 4 million bucks doesn't mean shit to me. But giving a kid that feeling that he'll remember or she'll remember for the rest of their lives is powerful. And I think that's part of having money and being in a place where you did things responsibly and right because you could, you're able to now do things for other people who can't. And maybe, you know, bring some joy and some happiness to their life. And that's to me um, how I choose to spend a lot of my money. And a lot of people who see me who I don't, you know, wear the fanciest clothes and I don't, you know, drive the fanciest car. Um, it's because I have the opportunity to do things like this. My wife and I both take a, a ton of joy in that. And selfishly, uh, it gives stuff to us, you know, uh, that we couldn't get by other means. Number 17, don't try to look rich. The ultimate goal is to be rich. I'll say that again. Don't try to look rich. The ultimate goal is to actually be rich. And I mean financially rich. You have to stop buying stupid things you can't afford to impress people you don't fucking like you'll lose that game in the end, big time. And I see a lot of people doing that. A lot of times we're driving cars and we're buying things and clothes and bags and shit. And sometimes it's for you because you love it and you're a car person or a bag person. Respect, I'm not judging you. If you can afford it, do it. It's awesome. Flaunt it, I don't care. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to people who are stretching to do it. I'm talking to people who are stressing themselves out to do it and buying things for status and ego to fill some gap that's missing or fill some void in their life to think that will bring you happiness. And it will not. You have to stop stressing yourself out at a job you do not like to buy a bunch of dumb fucking shit you don't need to impress people you don't like who don't give a shit about it anyway. And yet this goes on every single day in America 24 7 365 and I just do not understand it and I'm so thankful that I have this brain and I'm not in the system it's almost like when I watch it they are in the fucking matrix and I'm outside of it and I'm watching like a video game go on and I'm like what the hell is wrong with you guys and again if this offends you by listening to it and you have a shit ton of money I'm not talking to you but if you're stressed and you find yourself doing this and be honest why do you drive a BMW 
Why do you drive a Mercedes? I'm not against it. It's if you love the the machine, you love the car, you like how it feels and it drives, and you've you've wanted one as a kid and you studied it, and your dad drove one, and there's some like emotional attachment to it, and you can afford it. Awesome, do it. But if you're doing it just to look fucking cool to somebody or impress some girl or impress some guy or look fancy to your coworkers or your friends, you're fucking losing, dude. And it's stupid. And I promise you, you're gonna wake up one day and you remember me saying this and be like, wow, you know what? I heard some dude say this when, when I was like 27 and now I'm 52 and now I fucking get it. I wish I would have listened to that dumbass muscle fitness guy, you know, 20 years ago, but I didn't. And hopefully you get it by 52. Sorry for the rant there. Um, that would be my 17 uh, kind of rules for money. And if you want to go a bonus one here, I'll go bonus number 18. <sighs> Two things with a bonus. So we'll go 18, 18 and 18B, if you will. Two things. If you're with a partner... You got to be on the same page. You just do. Um, you have to have an open conversation about money, both short and long-term goals. Um, if not, it's going to cause great stress in your relationship. You cannot do it alone. You cannot do it while one of you is a saver and one of you is a spender. Um, it's like ice skating uphill, man. You might make some progress, but man, it does not take much for one person to torpedo all your efforts and results. You have to be on the same page, just like you... You know, a lot of people don't, a lot of, honestly, the crazy thing is a lot of husbands and wives don't communicate about sex. You know, like what they like, what they don't like, what feels good, what doesn't feel good. And it's like this embarrassing place for them to live, which is really strange to me because I think that's a big part of your life. You have to like the sex that you have. Um, it's a different podcast altogether. I'll get my wife on. We can talk about that sometime. But um, I think money is the same thing. And it's like this thing that we don't talk about in society with parents and friends and family. And it's fucking weird. Uh, but you need to, and you need to be educated about it, and you have to be on the same page and have the same goals. And you might find out, like, you know, your your partner wants to travel, but you don't. Or your partner wants to have a, a second home in the country, but you don't. And, and just, there's certain things that you're going to uncover and learn about each other. And luckily for me, um, my wife has always, you know, wanted to, to make her own money and have a, a certain sense of independence. And uh, she's obviously the spender of us, too. I'm, you know, much more frugal, and I come from a much more you know, modest background, up the way I'll put it, modest background, if you will. Um, but now that she's older and educated, she truly gets it and what it takes to, you know, really be financially independent, what it takes to be wealthy and not just look wealthy. And, you know, she'll come on the podcast. I'm going to have her on. We're, we'll be in Hawaii next week and I'll bring her on for a couple episodes. It'll be fun for us. But uh, she used to get caught up in that comparison stuff too. And now at 33, she really gets it. Now I had to uh, surround her you know, and drag her to, to Chris Hogan. I had to drag her to, to Christy Wright and Rachel Cruz and Dave Ramsey, you know, those other people, um, and have her in, and share stories that I've learned because of the ecosystem that I'm in. But uh, she gets it, and we're both on the same page. And if you're in a relationship where one person isn't and the other one is, it's really tough, man. And you have to understand, like, what do you want your life to look like? How long do you guys want to work? How much stress do you guys want to take on? What do you want your free time to look like? What do you want to be able to do uh, with your time and your money as you age and get older. And I think that's a really important conversation to have. And it's going to change, you know, from 25 to 30 and from 35 to 40 and so on. That's why we continually set a budget every month. It's why we communicate. That's why we both decide to pay down our house um, because we're in a position that very few people will ever be in. And we can do something now that's never been done. And uh, it's going to set us up for the next, you know, 30 years of our life. And if nothing else, even if I drop dead a year from now, I, I left my wife with, a shit ton of cash. 
um, assets, uh, life insurance, and a paid for home. So I did my duty as a husband to be a responsible person. Now, obviously, I don't even have kids. And if you're somebody out there who has kids, I would think that you would think the same way. And that's how I feel. I feel a responsibility to her to not leave her holding the bag. Like, hey, I fucked you over. You owe $800,000 on a house and some cars and credit cards, and now you're screwed. And you got to liquidate everything and sell it, and you're going to be destitute. I would never want to do that as a man. Uh, to my wife and so that's why I do take this you know as serious as I do um, I don't want other people to have to clean up my fucking shit like if it's my mess I'm going to clean it up and uh, that's the position that we're in today and so we're both on the same page in that regard and the same note like she doesn't want to drop dead and leave me with a bunch of <laughs> bullshit either so and I appreciate her for doing that uh, on a side note uh, last thing I'm going to leave you guys with don't be fooled by what you think winning looks like when you guys are on this journey and if you're if you're going to try to do this um, and, and get yourself out of debt and be financially independent and be wealthy and do things like your friends and family won't do. Uh, I'm not judging them, but just know that, you know, if we know 75% of people, so 75% of people are living check to check. So that's meaning that basically they're stressed and they're broke. Odds are your, a lot of your friends and family are that. And so you can't take advice from people who are losing. Again, like I don't take, first of all, I don't want anybody's advice. If I turn into a podcast, I'm listening to Dave Ramsey's advice. I'm listening to, you know, Gary Vee's advice. I'm listening to like, you know, BG Gadur's advice. I'm listening to Tommy Baker's advice. Like that's what I'm tuning in for. But just know they're going to give you advice. And I never take advice from people who are losing bigger than me. I just don't know. If your net worth is $30 million and you're, you're stress-free and you love your life, I'm going to listen to you because that's a position that I would like to be in. And at least if nothing else, I don't want to do exactly what you're doing. I can learn from you. So don't be fooled about what you think winning looks like because the example I'll give you is this, and I'll leave you guys after this. If you have two people, and those two people only have about a thousand extra dollars to spend, to save, or to place. I mean, they have an emergency fund built, and you know they have a couple bucks, about a thousand, let's say, that they can spend it, they can save it, or they can play with it. And one of those people invests five hundred bucks, you know, into uh, mutual funds or invested into their Roth IRA. Now they essentially have. 1500 bucks because they've invested into something which is going to compound and grow over time. And the other person spends the 500 bucks at a night out with, you know, friends with at a fancy dinner and has a shit ton of drinks and they post the photos on social media or they take a, a trip with it, um, which again, I'm all for experiences over stuff. They'll post all the photos on IG and Instagram and of those people, you know, one of them looks like they're winning and one of them is actually winning for the future. Um, and, and the point of me sharing that is because social media can be a fake bullshit highlight reel of showing people winning when they're actually fucking losing. Um, and I'm sharing it for you not to be one of those people. And the, the real life example I could give you is this. I can, when I, when we do pay off our home, you know, in 19 things could go wrong and it could still take me uh, 10 years to do it, which would still be, you know, 15 years faster than like what the, you know, 30 year schedule would be in anyway. So it's still a win. But let's say we, we pay it off on time. So we pay it off in less than a year from now. And I post it and I, and I talk about it. And not to, to brag or say it's awesome, but to share with people, hey, I was once a broke dipshit. And here the position I'm in today, now you can be in as well. That's why I'm sharing this stuff. It's not to, to, to put me up on a pedestal by any means. I've done, I got a doctorate in dumb shit. And I probably will have a PhD and a bunch of other doctorate degrees in dumb shit by the time my life is over. But I share it to show you guys there is hope and it can be dumb. But when I post that and talk about that, People will comment, um, people will say congratulations and say certain things, but I can promise you if I took a picture next to a Mercedes-Benz, if I took a picture next to a Range Rover, if I took a picture next to a G-Wagon and I posted it and said, 
you know, hashtag blessed. And I posed up next to it like some fucking douchebag and I shared it. I would get so many likes and comments and congratulations, even though I probably leased it. I got an $800 a month lease payment. I'm going to have to give it back. I don't really own it. I didn't really buy shit, but yet the world thinks I'm fucking winning. And that would get more engagement, more follows, more likes, and people would envy and think it was way fucking cooler than me paying off my house at 36. And again, I'm not judging you guys for that, but that just goes to show you social media can be a fake bullshit highlight reel of people showing what winning looks like to the people in the world, but yet you're really losing. And yet what really winning looks like isn't as fancy, isn't as sexy, and isn't as amazing to what everybody thinks it is. And I share that for the simple fact of when you do things the right way, when you take the time and you do it in a way that it can't be erased and it can't be taken away from you, it's not sexy, it's not fancy, it's not, you know, something that you can really sell to people. It's just the tried and true things that work. It's the same thing with fitness. And that's why I harp on the finance stuff so much. I could sell so much fitness shit that's sensationalized and super sexy and with a bunch of half truths. And it's really not going to help people, but it looks fancy and they'll buy it. And I know it'll make me money when the reality is tracking your macros, eating at a calorie deficit, being active, getting quality sleep, not stressing out. Wash, rinse, repeating that over time will make you the healthiest, happiest version of yourself. And that's a lifetime program. That's really hard to sell in fitness. That's not super sexy. That's not get ripped in five days. That's not get six-pack abs in six minutes. But yet, in finance, we do that. Well, invest in Bitcoin or make, you know, $10,000 a month just working from home. All this, you know, get rich quick fucking horse shit. That's not real. Passive income's not real. These things don't exist. Just like, you know, getting ripped in two weeks doesn't exist. It's the tried and true stuff. It's spending less money than you make, investing in things over time that go up in value, being diligent, wash, rinse, repeat. It's the same in your fitness life as it is in your finance life. It's not sexy. It doesn't really excite people when you talk about it, but it's the only things that truly work. Now, obviously, there's anomalies and there's unicorns outside of that where people could, you know, have one-off ideas or get really, you know, lucky. They could win the lottery or their parents could leave them millions of dollars. But if you're like me, you don't play the lottery. If you're like me, your parents aren't millionaires. If you're like me, you're not going to make $5 million in a year. If you're like me, you're going to have to do it, you know, the slow and simple way. Just make as much money as you can, being happy doing it, spending less than you make, invest in things that go up over value, don't buy a bunch of dumb shit you don't need, don't be super fancy before you can be fucking fancy, live as cheap as you can, as long as you can, and have fun along the way. Because the greatest things in life at the end of the day, they're not bought with money. It's just about doing things that you love to do every single day. Most of those things don't cost that much. And the crazy thing is if you do it right, you're going to have the money on the back in any way to spend it. And if you're smart about it, you guys will make it work. Regardless if you make $37,000 a year or $137,000 a year. And the the beautiful thing is, is at this point, you have the internet. You can drive Uber. You can deliver pizzas. You can start a side hustle. You can do so many things to generate money and change your financial tree and change your family situation that your parents and your grandparents couldn't have had. There really is no excuse. It's just, do you have the diligence to delay gratification today for something you want to happen 5, 10, 15 years from now and are you willing to just see it through and know that if you do things right for you know 5 years you can probably live the next 25 years like nobody else can but that just comes down to you delaying gratification and not getting too fancy too soon so 
Hopefully you guys enjoyed that rant. It went a lot longer than I had planned. But again, it's just my takeaway from it. Take it from a kid who was once broke as fuck to now who is living literally my dream life. And I wouldn't trade it for the world. And a lot of times it it does take a certain level of patience that even does test me. Uh, And it's painful at times, especially when you do see people around you, you know, doing a bunch of stuff you wish you could do. But just know if you if you do it the right way, you won't have to fake it to make it. You're actually going to be making it and you'll be able to live a life like nobody else can live, you know, for the rest of it. So. Anything else you guys want to hear on the podcast, shoot me a message, hit me up. I'm happy to share it. If you enjoyed this, share it with a friend or family member. Tag me in it. If you're on YouTube, thank you guys for watching. And if you have iTunes right now, stop. Don't be a lazy ass. Please, you guys, drop me a five-star. Leave a comment. It takes all of about 30 seconds. And again, like I said, open up your iPhone, iPad, MacBook, five-star it, review it, and share it with a friend or family member who might be struggling with finances or wants to hear somebody kick it to them real because nobody was once really broker than me, and uh, I'm in a pretty good position today. And again, all I did was spend less than I made, make smart decisions, wash, rinse, repeat. So until next time, eat well, train hard, be nice people, and please, you guys, keep doing shit you love with people you enjoy because your life is too short not to. I'll talk to you soon. Peace.